Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Scouting for Growth, the podcast where we embark on a journey of innovation, entrepreneurship, and personal growth. In the world of business, growth is a goal and a relentless pursuit. And today, we have the privilege to dive into the wisdom and experiences of George Morris, a lifelong entrepreneur and business coach who has not only weathered the storms of entrepreneurial journey, but has emerged as a guiding light for others on their path to success. George's story is one of resilience, determination, and learning from adversity. He's been through it all, from starting a business during the challenging times of the dot-com crash to building a thriving enterprise. He's not only a coach, but also a single father of two, showcasing his commitment to growth on both personal and professional fronts. As we sit down with George, we will explore the intricacies of business fundamentals, leadership, and scaling up ventures. We then will uncover the secrets of nurturing high-trust teams, optimizing technology and seizing opportunities in an ever-changing landscape. And we will also touch upon profound topics like the impact of AI on business and society, the yin and yang of innovation, and how we can enhance humanity along the way. But it is not just about business for George. It is indeed about embracing change, amplifying what makes us human, and authoring the next chapter of our lives with compassion and courage. So whether you are a seasoned entrepreneur, a startup founder, or anyone hungry for insights into personal and professional growth, this episode is packed with actionable wisdom and thought-provoking ideas. Join us on this journey on how to scale up in the right way. Our conversation promises to inspire and elevate your perspective on what it means to scale, grow, and thrive in today's dynamic world. And if you like the podcast, like it, rate it, and write a comment on the way too. So let's welcome George Morris. Hi, George. Thank you for joining me on Scouting for Growth. Hello, Sabine. Thanks for having me. So I'm excited to dive into our conversation around scaling up ventures. But before we go into the meat of our conversation, I want to know, George, who are you and what got you to focusing on scaling up ventures, actually? Yeah. So uh, I'll make it as short story as I can. Um been a lifelong entrepreneur. I had a digital marketing agency, a software company for like 15, 16 years and realized, you know, when I was in my twenties, I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing, doing this. Uh, you know, it was like, follow your thing. And I did my thing and we grew and we got to about 3 million in revenue. And along that way, I, I kept searching for mentorship. I kept searching for a way to learn how to grow and scale my company. Um, but I wasn't going to go back to school and get an MBA. And everybody uh, told me that told me and advised me said, don't go down the path of an MBA, go and explore 
the entrepreneur organization or YPO or these other things. So I did and uh, learned a ton and learned that so many entrepreneurs have similar struggles. And uh, when I left my agency and I, I sold my share of the company, I then got into a bit of consulting and coaching mm -hmm. and then came across scaling up along the way. Uh, the founder, Vern Harnish, is the founder of EO. And so there was some similarity there. And I really liked his methodology and his way of thinking about putting frameworks on how we think about scaling and growing companies. And so that's what I end up doing because I go into companies and I give them a framework to work with that they adapt and they make their own. And uh, we just kind of build it from there. So they have a system that they can run on. So I can hear, right, scaling is about system and creating systematic framework. But before we go into this, uh, George, you know, your entrepreneurial journey, you already mentioned that you had your business, you had your agency. What, as an entrepreneur, what were your biggest mistakes? And also what, <laughs> uh, when you're on the path, what made you a great leader, right? Do we have time to go over all the mistakes? I mean, I, I think there's been, a, there was a couple. Um, I think my biggest mistake, I got to say, my biggest mistake was um, I abjugated responsibility when I should have delegated responsibility. Uh, and so let me clarify that one. Um, it was towards the, the later stage of the company, at least the one as, as it was when I was in it. Um, I was going through a divorce at the time. And I thought that everything was good. We had everything systemized. We had plenty of people in place, 28 people. I didn't see myself as integral in the company anymore, at least in my imagination. So I basically turned all of the stuff I was doing over to my business development lead. She took it. And then uh, some other people took the work and they just ran with it. My director of operations, everybody. And I checked out because I had to deal with my own personal problems. Uh -huh. And then by the time I pulled my head out of my butt about a year and a half later, and I took a look at what was actually going on, uh, I didn't realize all the things that were made that were being decided in the direction the company went into. And I couldn't blame them because they were just going with what they knew and I was out of touch. Yeah. And so I, I had to put the blame back to myself and I was accountable for just abjugating it. Take all the work, run with it, make the decisions, I'm out. And so that was my biggest mistake. Uh, had I understood that better, I would have taken the time to really, truly delegate and clarify all the things that need to get done and then had a way of checking in on people. But I was just not in a place, nor did I even think that way. I just assumed that nobody needs me here. <laughs> and that was a mistake. Yeah. I mean, you you were an con con integral part of the shaper, build-up growth of that business. And, you know, I think as we scale business, we sometimes forget or do not always, when you know you are in the weed of it, um, mm -hmm. how to delegate and what we need to keep. And sometimes what we keep is the thing we love doing rather than the things that the business need, right? And mm -hmm. so how have you been able to maybe learn from that and help others avoid those type of small mistakes maybe? <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that's part of having a framework in place. It's part of having a system in place. It's part of having a philosophy in place on how you're going to run. Um, a lot of times if I come across an owner or a CEO that seems like they're a little frustrated, they're a little agitated by things, or they're a little overwhelmed, I have them do a real simple exercise uh, where I have them create three columns. 
And the one column I have love, the other column I have loathe, and the other column I have indifferent. And what I want them to do is I take, give them a few minutes. I said, I want you to write down everything you love. And they, that's really pretty quick. They write that down real quick. Everything you loathe, got that. I know all things I hate. And then what are the things that you're indifferent about? Because they're the ones that cause us the big problems or the ones we're indifferent about. Because it's very clear to avoid the things we hate doing. Yeah. And we love to do the things we love doing. But when I look at all the things that we're indifferent about, now I can get an idea of how committed are you to do the things that you're indifferent to, to mm -hmm. help the organization. And, you know, Jim Collins, uh, the author of Good to Great, he has an exercise that he does at his workshops where he has everybody write down their to-dos. So they make a big to-do list. And then he says to them, I want you to write on a scale of one to 10, how committed you are to getting that to-do done in the next few weeks. And everybody scores it. And he says, okay, Anything that is less than an eight, just eliminate it. You're never going to get it done. And so I use that same method with my clients where I'll say, make a list of all the indifferent. What are you committed to actually working on, even if you're indifferent to it? And if it's if it's less than an eight, we need to figure out how you can get some help because you're never going to do this thing and you're going to hold the organization back. So it's interesting. You already mentioned quite a few names. And so can mm -hmm. you tell us who are the leaders who are inspiring you out there who have helped you shape who you are today um, and your method around scaling up venture. Yeah, I mean, the, the first one is Vern Harnish, a uh, fantastic entrepreneur, founder of the Entrepreneur Organization. Um, he also helped found uh, Scaling Up, which yeah. is the methodology. Uh, fantastic speaker. He has more energy than I, than I can even like bottle a piece of his energy. He's in his... 60s, I believe now. And I think last year he traveled somewhere like 68 places around the globe. And he just year? never, in one year. And he never, I asked him one time, he lives in Boulder. And I asked him about his house. I said, where do you, where do you live, Vern? And he goes, I live on United Airlines. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was good. But he has such energy around things. And, and I love the way he thinks. He's a very creative thinker. Um, I love the work of Jim Collins, obviously, with Good to Great, fantastic leader. Um, but one of the ones I, I really love is Adam Grant. Um, you know, he's just somebody I see as a, as an author, as a thinker that takes concepts that we believe we know and we believe we understand, and he pivots them and he changes them around and causes us to think again or look at them differently. And those are those are the three that come up for me. I mean, there's always the Elon Musk of the world, but um, that's a that's a that's a different that's a different uh, bucket altogether. Yeah, no, I appreciate, <laughs> and I can see a lot of the uh, leaders um, you mentioned. I actually follow them as well. Are people who have a lot of energy, a lot of passion for what they do, and they actually had to pause at one point to actually reevaluate what they cared for, and actually set a new path. Uh, for themselves and I would say their fans and followers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, another great one I, I've always loved is very popular one is Richard Branson. Yeah. You know, I, I just think he's very good at figuring out what he's great at and delegating everything else and letting, and actually letting people go do what he said they can go do. He doesn't seem to be a micromanaging type leader. I mean, I've never personally worked with him. It's just what I've learned and what I've heard about him. Yeah. He has a, 
great style and uh, friends of mine who uh, receive funding from from MV direct uh, he smell at kilometers bullshit and mm -hmm. as you said he, when he give you the money uh, and the investment money he trusts that you can actually use it wisely yeah so i want to go into business growth and scaling now mm -hmm. And so I would love for you to let us know, you know, what do you think most companies are overlooking when they're actually trying to scale? And what will be some of the tips you would have for them to avoid mm -hmm. the mistake of moving from, you know, growing to scaling? Mm -hmm. uh, to me, with I just, again, following kind of the scaling up methodology, it, it makes sense how I see it, is there's four pillars. There's people there's strategy, there's execution, and then there's cash. So we start with the first pillar, there's people. And I think out of the gate, you want to make sure that you're developing the right culture in your team and having the right kind of ethos in your culture. And I think sometimes when it comes to startups, what we tend to do in, in startup world is we tend to look and say, I want to go find the unicorn. I want to go find the person who's the expert in this particular skill set. And we're hiring for talent. Uh, in terms of their skills, but we're not hiring for fit. We're not hiring for things like the ability to trust each other, the ability to have conflict with each other. And so therefore we bring in all these talented individuals that butt heads, that don't see eye to eye, that don't get committed to the same outcomes. And so to me, it's it's more about the team and getting the right people in the right seats, doing the right things right. And that's that's the first piece in my mind that any company should be getting right is people and then as a result, the culture, right? Because when you bring the right people and they'll set a tone, and if you're hiring for A-level people, you know, the best of the best, not so much talent A-level, like talent matters, but it's talent and it's temperament. And if you're hiring for A-level people, they want to work with A-level people. If you have the funds to do so, right? As a startup, you may not have the funds to do so, but then get really clear on the people that you're developing? Do you have people that you can develop into an A-level player? And what will it take to develop them out? So that's always what I say is culture and people. Culture, people, and you said also strategy, and then mm -hmm. you mentioned execution. And mm -hmm. I will tell you, it's interesting because I remember once upon a time, I got interviewed <clears throat> by um, a CEO of a big, you know, big company. Um, he used to come to telecoms and he went into insurance and he said, and, you know, on my CV, it's written, I'm, I was a strategist. And mm -hmm. so he said, I hate strategists. I hate strategists. They just <laughs> keep on planning. It's like, what's wrong with him? And then I think I realized really that he thought strategy is literally people sitting in a heavy ivory tower, just writing PPT yeah. and doing nothing. It's like strategy without execution is no strategy, right? Yeah. Because it means you have not understood that actually you need a path and then you need a roadmap and the strategy give you the steps to mm -hmm. go and execute and stay completely resilient and congruent with your plan, right? Am I right, George? <laughs> you are right. You are right. And I, I think that's the piece. There's um, there's a uh, an author, speaker, professor, Roger Martin, that does a lot of stuff with Harvard Business Review. And uh, I love how he talks about strategy and how he thinks about strategy. And I actually feel like this is one of those terms that everybody has a little bit of different definition for. When you ask them to define strategy, a, a team of six people privately, they'll all define it differently. And 
<clears throat> what I like to say to them is strategy is a hypothesis, right? We're, we're, we believe that we see the world in this way and then these conditions are true. If these are if these conditions are true, then we have a hypothesis that if we do X, then we're going to get Y as a result. And the problem with strategy is that it's 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 a bit of an art mixed with a bit of science, right? It's not provable. We can't go through and prove that the strategy is going to work. We're taking a, a, a guess that this a, an informed guess, but it's a guess. Yeah. And then we got to go ahead and iterate, right? So. And I, I think for my teams, the best way that I describe strategy is I use it in the case of a military, mm-hmm. right? Or a military campaign. With a military campaign, like I, I think of Hannibal going over the Alps, right? He had an idea when he was thinking about his attack that nobody in their right mind would go over the Alps, especially with elephants, mm-hmm. go over the Alps and lead an attack from the back. And so he believed that that strategy would work. It was risky. It was not able to be proven. It did work, right? So, but if it didn't work, he would have had to adapt his strategy. If something happened along the way, he would have to iterate and say, okay, this strategy got foiled. It didn't produce the results we wanted. So we need to pivot and we need to think again. And once we set the strategy, now let's execute the strategy. But what too often happens is we execute from a reactive place and there's no strategy informing why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. And I see it often in early stage startups, often Mm. focused on the product technology, rather than looking at customer, you know, making sure that there is a buyer for it and actually there's mm-hmm. a price for it as well, which takes me price, price, cash. You know, you also mm-hmm. talk about cash. I assume commercial cash and investment cash. What mm-hmm. are you looking for when you look at cash within your framework, George? Uh, you know, the one thing, and it might be surprising to you, is I'm looking for financial literacy. I think too often uh, executive teams, there's the assumption that everybody on an executive team understands how to read a PNL, a balance sheet, and, and, and they just there's an assumption that, yeah, you know how to read this. The truth of the matter is, I would say more than half of the people on the executive teams I've worked with cannot read those documents. They do not understand them. So what they do is they smile and nod and let everybody else talk about what's going on. And they shut their mouth because they're afraid of looking like idiots. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the first piece is to make sure, one, that we can develop financial literacy, and then we create an environment that it's safe to ask questions about the finances and not feel judged or not feel stupid about the questions that are being asked. And when you start doing that, you'll develop as a team a better financial literacy. Once we get there, then it's a matter of asking the questions. Do we have... Do we have the cash to fund our growth? Yeah. Because growth eats cash. And how are we thinking about our cash flow? How are we thinking about all these things? And I, I will say not not every company is is even 101 level fluent in this stuff. Yeah, no, it is true. And, uh, you know, sometimes for, for some cash numbers is not the most exciting part because I come from a finance <laughs> background. I do like numbers and I do not make yeah. decision without the numbers. But I think it's important what you are saying, that literacy um, amongst um, 
leadership teams, because we make this assumption that everybody is equal and actually have the same understanding when we reach that level in our careers. So one thing I know you're also interested in, actually, George, is AI. And this is the elephant in the room, right? We are talking about AI pretty much every day. Uh, today, <laughs> if we go yes. into LinkedIn, it's all about AI, generative AI. And I, you know, I ride the wave because I love uh, artificial intelligence and you know a long time ago a part of my career I was doing predictive analytics uh, before it was called AI and you know nest best action and using uh, uh, you know machine learning to get something in your inbox or really understand your intent so I, I quite like it what's your view on artificial intelligence and how do you use it I mean do you use it with work and scanning up? every single day from the moment GPT rolled out public uh I I am all about it. I love it. Um, I, and I gotta say, Sabine, I am I, I am equally excited about it as I am terrified of yes. it. And it's a it's a duality dealing with it. Um, look, I, I I look at it as it's going to impact every single job in the in the next few years. To what degree, I don't really know, um, but it will impact every single job. And if we can get to a point of uh, AGI, you know, uh, artificial general intelligence, I think that's going to be game changing because that's going to be very human like. Um, but the way I look at it is, you know, it's it's a tool. It's a tool that we got to incorporate and we got to bring into our tool set and we got to adapt to it. But we're we're it's almost like what we're talking about strategy. We can't quite see where this is going to go. Right. We We don't have a clear vision for how artificial intelligence is going to impact our companies. But I think we would be remiss to just ignore it mm -hmm. and simply continue working as is without adapting it in our organizations. So for me, I'm using AI to help teams accelerate different different elements within their companies. So for instance, um, pre-AI, I would sit down with a team and say, let's document a process. Let's figure out the whole process and how it works. It would be for one process, it could be several hours of feedback. And now what I'll do is I'll say, okay, give me the general points of the process and I'll have the AI generate a flow map, a whole visual map of how the process works. And then suddenly everybody in the room that's looking at the process is like, oh no, that's not how it works. Oh, change this, this. And all of a sudden everybody gets engaged because they're not starting from scratch. They have uh, they have some color on the palette that they can work with. And it just accelerates our ability to see those things. Mm -hmm. um, I also think AI does a fantastic job at parsing historic data and parsing old, uh, not old, historic information. I think us as humans, we have a better ability to forecast and dream and see what would be possible where I haven't seen that demonstrated from AI yet. I don't think that's the area where AI excels. It's it's good at retrospective, not so good at looking forward. So if we can dream and we can think bigger and we can see possibility, that is our advantage right now. And we can inform that with AI. Yeah, and no, I agree. It's uh, you always have. I mean, the other things is you need to always to have this human in the loop to actually validate and and check the outcomes coming from um, any AI generated piece of content. But absolutely, right, actually, foresight is not um, the greatest skills of the current capabilities we have today. 
And we just need to be mindful that we just need to check what comes out from those great large language models and foundational models if we want to make sure we do not damage our reputation and actually yeah. remain concurrent with our brands. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I fully agree. This, this, this whole journey on AI is going to be fascinating. Um, and I think it's, it's going to be interesting to watch companies incorporate it because there's a level of trust that we're going to have to have with AI. Um, the way I look at it is this way is as a human being, uh, everything that we're built around our structures, our society, how we operate, it's all based on story and yeah. the stories and the agreements that we have based on our, the way that we talk and trust each other. Right. And now we've created this alien intelligence that is now going to jump in and co-author our stories with us and co-create our culture with us. Yeah. So are we going to trust the AI to help us co-create uh, a, a new reality that is not just going to be purely human driven. It's going to be AI and human driven. And I actually believe that in time, I don't know how long in time, I believe we'll come to trust AI more than we'll trust other human beings. Yeah, it's interesting comment because, you know, trust is so important. And uh, it's the conversation I tend to have at the moment when I engage around generative uh, AI is um, about ethics and responsibility. Mm -hmm. uh, because at least in my industry, finance, insurance, you know, a big corporate cannot just deploy generative AI capability without knowing what could be the implication on their customers, whether we do underwriting or claims or servicing, uh, because at the end of the day, that is going to impact their reputation. So a question which comes to, to mind is, as you are scaling a business and we are just talking about AI, do you actually identify or recommend tools, method, techniques, to those businesses you are scaling up around some of the capabilities, AI capabilities, which are out there, which can help them automate and do things better, maybe a little bit faster? Yeah, I, I do. Um, but what I what is actually surprising me, Sabine, is that at least of the clients I work with, now I got a limited view, right? I mean, I don't work with thousands of clients. I work with a handful of clients at any one time. And in over the course of the last year, there's been a curiosity to AI, um, a, a, a curiosity. I wouldn't say an openness to go adopt it right away, but just kind of watch it. Mm -hmm. And um, I've actually had to, from my opinion, I've had to actually champion AI and the adoption of AI more than I thought I would. I thought that the, the general clientele that I've had to deal with um, would be more receptive to how do we incorporate this? How do we use this quicker? And it's been more or less, we use it to help us write emails. We use it to help us clean up proposals. And I sit back and think, you're, you're, you're at this tip of the iceberg. Yeah, you're, you're not anywhere near what this thing can do. But I find that most of the teams are so busy executing and dealing with what they have to do that they don't come up for air and take a look at the bigger picture until we do like a quarterly session or a yearly session where I can have them lock down their laptops and say, let's think about this for a second. Once that happens, the light bulbs go off and they say, ah, oh, okay, I think we can use it this way and that way and this way. So it's still, in my opinion, it's still very early on. Uh, you know, this 
GPT only came out essentially a year ago. Correct. And I think most people started getting the gist of it six months ago. So in the last six months, the light bulbs are starting to go off, but it's still a lot slower than I thought. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, within my team, we, we use it every day. I do my own art. So instead of buying, you know, um, <coughs> pictures, and I used to buy a lot of pictures. So I write a lot of content and uh, I work with brands where I need to make sure that the content I use in my copy is commercially acceptable, right? I can't just take, you know, unpaid uh, piece of uh, photography. I started building my own, right, using some of the right. platforms. And I really like what comes out, right, with my little <laughs> yes. props. And then I become super personalized. And um, because I guess on the market, a few people know that I'm super interested in it. On Saturday, I got an email from a company doing um, image to video. So I was so excited. Oh, yes. Now I can do, take my picture, I can do videos with it. It's like, and he sent me an email this morning and I was so excited that he engaged that, you know, why are you interested? It's like, you know what? I'm quite creative and I would like to see how this is going. But what yeah. I found is everything is need to be orchestrated, right? Whether you are doing the writing or what, whether you are doing the picture or whether you have your own avatar or doing this image to video, some point we'll need like a workflow to connect all yes. things together so that we know our enterprises are using them effectively. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then it's a matter of, well, where is the data being pulled from? Um, and to kind of riff off what you're saying there is I think the area where companies can start thinking about AI a little bit more is to start doing an audit of their internal data and yeah. to start taking a look at their internal data and say, how can we use this data as the basis of any AI that we develop that layers on top of that. So the more that we can get stuff digitized and organized so that when the AI starts reading the data and making decisions, how's it weighting the information that you're giving it? Yeah. And I, I think that's a great area where people can start preparing. So George, I have this last question which come to mind because when we started, we talked about people and culture. But what I've seen from reading about you is you are talking about building high trust teams. So I'd love for you to explain to us what that is and how can company take advantage of this to scale their businesses? Yeah, that's a great question. I think what happens is so often uh, in the business world, we try to find analogies in sport and we try to find analogies when it comes to, say, military. Yeah. And we look at these two things as like, OK, so these things correlate to the business world. And uh, in reality, uh, they don't. And I'll tell you why is because in sport and in business, there's usually a singular objective that we're working towards. So in sport, uh, if I know I'm going to go for the World Cup, then I'm going to watch my teammates show up and practice, be in the waiting room, do all the things they need to do to align to getting to that particular goal. And if they're not putting in the work, then I'm going to have issue with them and I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to have conflict with them. And it, it becomes very clear you're not showing up. So I'm having conflict, but it's generative conflict because I want you to show up because I want you to be committed to the things that we're committed to as a team. <laughs> In business, it's not like that. In business, we have multiple goals that we're trying to hit at any one time. 
And the odds that the team knows what those goals are is really low. In fact, I don't know if it's MIT or if it was Harvard, but one of them had an article talking about executive teams. And they said, if you ask an executive team to name the top three priorities for the company that are the top three current priorities, less than 20% would actually nail all three of them. And like, we're talking three priorities at the executive level. And I think that's why we have to talk about these things on a more regular basis. When you're going for a World Cup, I don't need to talk about a World Cup every day. Yeah. You know, like we know we're doing that. But when we're talking about business, we got to talk about the goals every day. So when we're talking about them, we got to talk about trust. So this trust thing comes from the work of Patrick Lencioni, who wrote a book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Okay. And another book called The Advantage. And what Patrick Lencioni did is he created a pyramid. And he said, in the bottom of the pyramid is trust. And when you have trust, and this is not like table stakes trust, this is not like, hey, Sabine, you said you're going to send that email out. Uh, did you? Like, that's implicit. I, I just expect you to do the minimum. This is um, this is vulnerability-based trust. And uh, I like to use the analogy of some Navy SEALs that I saw on Discovery Channel one time talking yeah. about how to do uh, an after-action report. So what these Navy SEALs did is in this documentary, uh, Navy SEAL A went through a door and then Navy SEAL B and C came in and followed behind him. He's looking ahead of him. They went left and went down the hallway. Mission executed, no problem whatsoever. In the after action report, SEAL A that broke through the door initially came back and said, I failed you guys. And they're all like, well, you didn't fail us. You You did your job. And he's like, no. He's like, my job was to look right and look straight and look left. I just looked left and I looked straight. I did not check my right, which could have got all of us shot and killed. I own that. And what that did is it built trust and rapport with the SEAL team. So now every other guy doing a debrief knows that they can admit where they made a mistake. So that's vulnerability-based trust. Yeah. So our next tier up is conflict. And this is not about just fighting to fight. It's about having conflict in ideas and when you can have healthy conflict because you're built on trust, you can find the best outcomes. And it's not about one party winning over the other party. It's about taking the thing that you're conflicting with and looking at it as a third party. And you're talking about that thing rather than the individuals that are making the point. What happens then is you develop a commitment. So that's the third tier on the triangle, on the pyramid. So when you can have trust, generative conflict. Now you get commitment because you both have duped it out in terms of your understanding. That allows you to have accountability, which then allows you to have results. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the overall pyramid, I can do evaluations with teams to score them and see where do they fit on this pyramid? Where do they have a problem? Oh, it's conflict. They got high trust, but they're not having high conflict. Fascinating. And I think at the end of the day, we all are aiming to achieve outcomes and being high-performing and taking our accountability to deliver the result we want to achieve for our businesses. So, yep. George, where can we find you? You know, if somebody wants to knock on George's door and say, you know what, I need to scale up, George, what do I do? Just go to gmorris.com. Um, that's my website. I have a very healthy blog there. I also have my LinkedIn connections, my my Instagram, which isn't as active when it comes to business, but LinkedIn definitely is so. And I got my blog there. So uh, they can go to LinkedIn and 
I got a few scaling up newsletters that I create, mm-hmm. uh, daily sparks to just kind of invigorate how you're thinking about business each day. And it's short, it's very ADHD friendly. And then a weekly newsletter that goes out too. That's cool. Maybe I can help with Instagram. I'm just starting. I've started three months ago, but my goal is to reach half a million um, followers within the year. So I'm working hard. And so then I can share my tips and techniques. And then you Bring can- Bring them on. I'm happy to learn. How to just scale up and scale up the startups I've been working with for the past few years. So George, thank you very much for joining me on Scouting for Growth. That was an amazing conversation. And I look forward to keeping in touch. I look forward to keeping in touch too. I look forward to your Instagram secrets. Thank you, George. Thank you. If you like this podcast, subscribe now, share with your friends. And if you enjoyed it, please give it a five-star review. Also, if you want to cover any specific subject with me, contact me on Instagram under Sabine VDL Officials or LinkedIn under Sabine Van der Linden. Thank you.